You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, in Matthew chapter 11, we see Jesus continue his ministry throughout the cities of Israel. He had, in chapter 10, instructed his disciples primarily, and he had sent them out and really given them a significant and severe warning about how difficult life and ministry would be as a disciple of Christ. All of the adversity they would experience, the division they would experience, he even prophetically announced to them the future persecution that the early church especially, but of course additional eras of the church and even in various locations and countries, the persecution that the church in large would experience, Jesus prophesied concerning that brand of persecution that would come upon the church as he sent his men out in an initial sense to preach and communicate the kingdom of heaven. And so here's the king sending out his messengers. But in Matthew chapter 11, the attention turns and it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so Jesus goes on the circuit as well. And he's going to each of these cities and he is teaching and preaching. Now, in his previous circuits through, the ministry did include teaching and preaching. But there was, of course, this very miraculous power that was attached to the ministry of Christ. A casting out of demons, a power over sickness, and even death. And so here you have Jesus now focusing mostly on the word and communicating to the people, which was, of course, the necessary thing that the miraculous had opened up the door for him to be able to do. And so he goes on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, verse 2, it says, When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So, John the Baptist, not the disciple, but John the Baptist, the one who was a forerunner of Christ, had come, was proclaiming repentance and was preparing the soil there in Israel for the coming of Jesus, the cousin of Jesus, uh, the one who the Old Testament scripture had prophesied of, the one who would make straight the ways of the king and would fill in the valleys and tear down the mountains and make the roadway for the king as smooth as absolutely possible. The one who cried out and said at the riverside, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who, when Jesus came to him, he said, why is it that you want to be baptized by me? I have need to be baptized by you. I am not worthy, he would say about Jesus. I am not worthy to loosen 
the sandal strap off of his foot. I mean, this man is now in prison. And from that place, he sends some of his disciples. And this is what they say to Jesus in verse 3 after being sent from John. They say, this is the question John wants to ask. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It's just so fascinating to me what trial and difficulty can do in discouraging the human heart. You know, here's John in prison experiencing that pain, that persecution. He had been so bold. He had been so alive. He had been so strong. And here he is in prison and he had previously proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. But now he is asking the question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And I think that there's a discouragement that can so easily come. You know, one of the greatest weapons that Satan will ever use in your life and in my life is the weapon of discouragement. When he can discourage us, what happens is our whole navigational system is thrown out of whack. No longer are we able to find true north. No longer are we able to get our bearings. No longer are we able to dial in and hook into that satellite signal. And we're continually during times of discouragement put in that search mode where we're struggling to really find the truth. And John was no different. This powerful man was no different. And I believe in that place of darkness, there was this question that had entered into his heart. Discouragement had caused him to begin to doubt and to wonder. And that confusion had begun to enter into his heart. And Jesus answered in verse 4, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And then Jesus says in verse 6, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, on the one hand, what Jesus says to his disciples, you know, listen, go report to John of what you hear and what you see. Make sure you tell him about the blind that are receiving their sight, the lame that are beginning to walk, the lepers that are cleansed, the deaf that hear, and the dead that are raised up, and the poor that have the good news preached to them. Make sure that you tell John about all of these different elements that you see and that you hear. All of these things would be extremely messianic in nature. I mean, in the kingdom of the coming Messiah, there will be no sickness, no death, no tears, no pain, no trials, no difficulties. And so Jesus is pointing that out. Listen, tell John the brand of coming that you are witnessing from me. Tell him about the kind of ministry that I'm conducting. All right, these are messianic things that I'm doing. He's wondering, are you the one or are we waiting for another? Tell him the kind of stuff that I'm doing. Hopefully that will help him understand that I am fulfilling and will fulfill ultimately 
those prophecies about me from that Old Testament perspective. But then he says this interesting thing in verse 6 that probably gives us a little indication into what was taking place in the heart of John the Baptist when he says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The offense that would so easily come would be present because Jesus was not going in and toppling the Roman government. He was not calling down fire from heaven and establishing Israel as a superpower once again. He wasn't doing that kind of thing. And there could easily have been that kind of expectation. And therefore, with that kind of expectation, that kind of offense that Jesus hadn't done the very thing that they were expecting him to do. And the Lord will often do the things that we expect, but not in the way that we are expecting them. And so Jesus is letting them know, hey, listen, I'm going to do everything that I said I'd do, and I am fulfilling everything that I said I would fulfill, but perhaps in a different way than you've anticipated. So blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So now John's disciples are leaving, and Jesus begins to speak to them. He says these beautiful things about the Baptist. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? You know, he's saying, listen, you didn't go out to see a man who is like a reed shaken by the wind. You know, wherever the wind is blowing, that's the direction this man is going. No, no, John was much stronger than that. And, and you didn't go out to see a man clothed with soft garments. That kind of man lives in a king's palace. That's not the kind of man that you went to see with John the Baptist. He was rugged. He was real. But then he says, verse 9, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, Jesus says. That's it. You went to see a prophet. And I tell you, more than a prophet. You know, really, John the Baptist was more than just a prophet. He was really, in one sense, the last of the Old Testament prophets, wasn't he? Dressed in similar fashion to Elijah, an amazing man, a powerful man, the spirit of the Lord upon him, a real zeal about him. And like many of the Old Testament prophets, a confrontational aspect to his prophetic ministry. But as much as he was really kind of the last of that Old Testament era of prophets and type of prophet, he was also something different. And that's what Jesus says. He was more than a prophet. He was really a hinge to prepare the way and to open the door and turn us towards the new covenantal ministry of Christ. And so there was a moreness, so to speak, of John's ministry, a herald of the Messiah. He was preparing the way of the Lord. And that's what Jesus says in verse 10. He quotes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. This is what was special about the Baptist, is that his ministry was preparatory. He was preparing people for Christ. And so after building up all of this about the Baptist, and I should say that I find it so fascinating and wonderful 
that here is John in this moment of what looks to be doubt that's beginning to well up inside of his heart. He sends his disciples to say to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He's beginning to wonder inside of his heart. But in the middle of all of that, the Lord looks at him and says, this man, you know, this man who, you know, right now he's going through a little dark season. He's got some doubt within his heart. This man is an incredible man. This man is more than a prophet. You know, Jesus has these wonderful things to say about John, looking past his doubt and observing the good inside of his heart. And Jesus then explains, he says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. How's that for a statement from Christ? He says, listen, John was the greatest and is the greatest man who's ever lived. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, this statement is so powerful and is in so many ways preparatory for what we're going to receive through the rest of the New Testament as we study it. The great privileges and rights of believers that we are free from condemnation and that we are co-heirs with Christ and that we have hope that is able to invade our hearts and that we are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. John was great. In fact, so great that Jesus says of every person born of a woman, John is the greatest, the most amazing prophet with the most amazing ministry. But for every single believer in the kingdom, every person that's placed into the blood of Christ, in Christ, every person that is a part of this new covenant that Jesus has instituted by his blood, Every single person who is situated in the blessings that are found in Christ Jesus, every single person with that description upon their lives is even the least of those people is greater than John the Baptist, Jesus says. So what we see here is that our position under the new covenant, under grace, the grace of God, the grace of Christ, the ministry of grace, that, that, that the law came through Moses, but grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. That reality puts us in a better position and standing than John the Baptist himself could acquire. And so just knowing the great and deep and wonderful love of Jesus he says in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus talks for a moment in verse 12 about the, to the crowd, about the violence that had occurred. And he says, you know, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And John, of course, as a man who came in that Old Testament era style of prophecy, 
you know, he was experiencing persecution himself. There he was in prison, but he was really the last of a long line of prophets who had experienced various forms of persecution at the hand of those who were against the kingdom of heaven, those who brought violence upon it and tried to take it by force. And then Jesus, after alluding to this persecution, tells us in verse 13 and 14 that the law and the prophets had been prophesying until the moment of John the Baptist. There's sort of this sealing up of that ministry now that is sealed up and finished. John is sort of the period of it and the end to it, the final one who would minister in that kind of sense. And he says in verse 14, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So back in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah came. And the way that Jesus says this is so fascinating because he says, first of all, you know, he says it like it's optional. If you're willing to accept it, John is the fulfillment of that Elijah prophecy from Malachi 4, verse 5 which is fascinating in and of itself. But so John is at least a partial fulfillment of the Malachi 4-5 prophecy. But notice how he says it. He says, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So even embedded in the statement of Jesus is this sense in which Elijah is still going to come. And of course, Elijah would come before the coming of the Messiah. So John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy in the first coming of Christ. But you're seeing language here from Jesus that gives us a hint to the second coming of Christ. And that potentially Elijah, who Jesus says is to come, would show up before the second coming of Christ. And of course, many have attempted to demonstrate that in Revelation chapter 11, where you have two prophets who are prophesying there in Jerusalem during what many refer to as the Great Tribulation, that Elijah will be one of those prophets. And personally, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Jesus says in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in other words, this takes a little understanding to unwind. Now, verse 16, he moves on and he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? You know, here he is referring to the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. And he says, you know, what shall I compare the people of this generation? It is like children, Jesus said, sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. And this is what they sing. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And then Jesus explains it. So you get this picture. Jesus said, this is what this generation is like. A bunch of little kids calling out to their friends and singing this song and saying, hey, when we played the flute, a happy instrument, a happy song, you did not dance. And when we sang a dirge, a, a sad song, you did not mourn. You know, your reaction didn't go with the music that we were playing. For John, verse 18, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, 
he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, yet yeah, wisdom is justified by her deeds or her children. And so Jesus is basically saying, listen, this generation needs to make up its mind. Like a child playing a happy song and a dirge and wondering why his friend isn't reacting in the right way. That's what this generation was like to John the Baptist and to Jesus. They looked at John and saw his sobriety and his consecration. He came neither eating nor drinking. He was eating locusts and wild honey out in the wilderness. And they said, that is demonic. And then Jesus comes along and he's willing to hang out with tax collectors and sinners and preach to anybody who's in need. And they say that he's a glutton and a drunkard. That was their accusation. And so Jesus gives a beautiful picture of the inconsistency of that generation and their inability to receive the things of God. They just wrote off the things of God so quickly. Then verse 20, it says that he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, verse 21, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. So he rebukes the city of Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now Ezekiel had prophesied about this region, Tyre and Sidon, and they had experienced destruction as a result of their disobedience, their persecution of God's people, and God had judged that region. And so in the Old Testament, you've got Tyre and Sidon. These are wicked people. And Jesus says that Chorazin and Bethsaida, he says to them, he says, listen, if the mighty works that had been done in you, you know, here's Jesus ministering to them personally, casting out demons, healing the sick. If those things had been done in Tyre and Sidon, he said, he said they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But verse 22, he says, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And as we saw in chapter 10, Jesus is unpacking here in chapter 11, the concept of the different kinds of judgment that would be experienced. And that those with great revelation like Chorazin and Bethsaida, their judgment will actually be more harsh than places like Tyre and Sidon, who had revelation, but not the kind of revelation of the brand and quality that Chorazin and Bethsaida had. So it says a lot, you know, about a nation like the United States, where there's great revelation. We have to give an account for what we've received. And he says the same thing here about Capernaum of verse 23. And you, Capernaum, you will be... Uh, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. You know, had Sodom had the ministry of Jesus, they would have repented and still been around. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And so this says quite a bit about the manner of the judgment of God.
Now, verse 25, it says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And so he just begins to pray. Now, this is a prayer. And he says, Father, thank you for hiding these things from, you know, the lofty, the wise. And thank you for revealing them to those with that childlike, humble spirit and heart. Yes, Father, verse 26, for such was your gracious will. And so the sovereign plan of God in revealing himself to the humble of heart. Verse 27 he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know, if you really want to know the Father, if you really want to know God as Father, then who do you need to know? You need to know the Son. And Man often has a very skewed and self-defined definition of who God is. And, you know, we'll say things like, if I were God and I can't see how God would. But really, the best way to understand the Father is to look at Jesus and especially to look at the cross of Christ. To see the holiness and the love of God reconciled when we wonder at pain and heartache and agony in the world. We look at the cross and we understand that God has decided to embrace that in and of himself to experience pain and agony for us. So the cross explains the Father. And then Jesus gives this wonderful call. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's not the coming to the church or to a program, or to a religion. It's connection to Jesus. Coming to Jesus. And this is what he spoke of in John chapter 15, that as you abide in him as the vine, you receive his nutrients, you abide in his love, you will have life and be a fruit-bearing person. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And that generation, they were loaded up with burdens by the religious teachers of the day, the law was, Galatians 5.1, a yoke of bondage, an unbearable yoke, Acts 15, verse 10. And so Jesus says, come to me, take my yoke, verse 29, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And Christ has given us a yoke that we're able to handle. Not the yoke of the law, not a yoke of bondage, but a restful yoke. Even in the middle of all of this persecution that he speaks of, a restful yoke. And the truth is that he will yoke up with us and enable us to carry the load and live his life through ours. His yoke is easy and his burden is truly light as we live our lives by his power and ability. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.